Welcome to Faith and Labor, which is a podcast video series exploring the history of Catholic social teachings and how it can be used to bridge divisions and guide humanity to solve the great challenges facing the working class. Hosted by John Andrzejczak of Labor Lines and Evan Papp of Empathy Media Lab, we discuss history, scripture, encyclicals, current events, and how faith and love is needed to strengthen solidarity and heal a world in disarray. So in episode two, we will anchor the episode focusing on quadragesimo anno, which means in the 40th year, and is an encyclical issued by Pope Pius XI in 1931, 40 years after Leo XIII's encyclical Rerum Novarum, further developing Catholic social teaching. Rerum Novarum was also the focus of episode one of Faith and Labor. We also discuss the Catholic concept of subsidiarity, and we will end with current headlines related to the Poor People's Campaign and the Catholic season of Lent. So John, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Evan, and thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here in February. We're seeing spring return where I'm at. And as you know, and again, we're, we're a week into Lent. And I think that the church's teaching has so developed well into Lent. Uh, maybe it was there before, but we were missing it about what, what the church really calls for in Lent. So yes, again, we're, we're going to be going further into the uh, teachings of the church encyclicals, 1931, post Pius XI. So Evan, I'm going to kind of bounce the ball back to you because uh, you brought this up. The background, 1931, I'm, uh, a very, very interesting historic events going on. So we're looking at after a tremendous boom in post-World War I finance capitalism, and then the crash in 1929. And you have Mussolini on the march already have taken leadership over in Italy and where Rome is obviously based. And you have the German country really in shambles. And this is 1931 is about a year and a half before Hitler fully took over as uh, chancellor and uh, dictator and Fuhrer of, of Germany. So it, there's a lot of issues in the world. And then th at the same time, you have the, the Bolsheviks and communism that just took over the Romanov house in Russia and they abolished religion. Hmm. So in some ways, the Roman Catholic Church in 1931 sees the excesses of finance capitalism and the depression and also the reaction to that, which is growing fascism and communism, which is the complete annihilation of the Roman Catholic Church. So it's a very fine line for the church to walk during this time. And I imagine it, it's one of the more dangerous times in, in the 2000 year history of the church. I think it's a good point, right. One, one can look back at that and the, right, the, the Bolshevik revolution. And while history has a tendency, especially American history is like 1918, okay, things ended. The war was over. Europe was in turmoil for a decade. And the decades afterwards, the uh, Russian Revolution went to the Russian Civil War. The unrest in Germany was catastrophic. Murders, assassinations, what we now call death squads with the military, uh, former soldiers under the Freikorps. And again, from, from his vantage point, Pope Pius uh, XI issued a number of encyclicals the one we're talking about now, in effect, celebrated and reinforced the first encyclicals of social teaching in the church by his predecessor and Rerum Novarum. And, and I'm going to just pull a few things out. I'm going to credit uh, the Catholic Labor Network for highlighting some of these passages. And the one I find here is the distribution of created goods 
is laboring today under huge disparity between the few exceedingly rich and the property less, and it must be effectively called back to and brought into the norms of the common good, that is social justice. So there are our terms, and can we hear it echoing almost 100 years later, in 2021, uh, the huge disparity in wealth? This concept of subsidiarity, I know you uh, wanted to also put this as a focus because it's, it's such a complex concept. At the same time, it's very simple. And subsidiarity charts a course between individualism and collectivism by locating the responsibilities and privileges of social life in the smallest unit or, of organization at which they will function. Larger social bodies, be they the state or otherwise, are permitted and required to intervene only when smaller ones cannot carry out the tasks themselves. But I'm going to throw it back to you. Let's just say just right now in the United States, before we get into a larger picture of all humanity, 330 million people. Let's talk about health care. Are we going to do this on a volunteer basis? Are we going to do it on a philanthropic basis? Are we going to do it, you know, it, it, to make it easily fall into social Darwinism, survival of the fittest. So if we're going to have a discussion on that, and I see that, I think we need to be realistic and be honest about uh, it. And if you're going to say that it's not the role of, of the federal government, as an example, to provide health care, a fair, equitable, and adequate level of health care to every human being, which the church would call for, there's no mistake in that teaching of the dignity of the human being. And we're going to see this on and on again. There's no escaping that. There's no, there's no, it's airtight. Where can we see this, Evan? And, you know, again, it, we see the disparity even at the state level. To argue at the state level in a federal system can lead to disparity. So I find it to be a very liable to be abused escape hatch for some. Let's dive into this quadragissimo anno. And looking at the catholiclabor.org, they pull out a, a, the quote saying, Leo argued that the worker's right to a living wage took precedence over the free market. Quote, wages, as we are told, are regulated by free consent. Nevertheless, there underlies a dictate of natural justice, more imperious and ancient than any bargain between man and man, namely that wages ought not to be insufficient to support a frugal and well-behaved wage earner. If through necessity or fear of a worse evil, the workman accept harder conditions because an employer or contractor will afford him no better, he's made the victim of force and injustice. So there is this principle of natural law and subsidiarity that we respect and acknowledge that the individual and the family unit and the community unit are ways that can best express the culture and potentiality mm -hmm. of an individual of mankind's ability to love as a conscious human being. Yet at the same time, because there are large predators in the world and you sometimes need to band together to a much larger size to be able to defend yourself to do God's work. Absolutely. And, and we'll see that as we, as we move along in this, in, in this series, we'll see that time and time again reiterated by later pontiffs, St. John Paul II, man that spoke 15 languages, wrote in 18, used the term indispensable when it comes to one of those institutions, unions, indispensable aspect of society. So I'm more than willing to credit that man that he just didn't pull that out of the air.
indispensable, as in oxygen, as in water. And I'm glad you brought up this thoughts on calling out the lie, if you will, of saying that a human being, if a man or a woman just accepts the wages offered, that makes it right, that makes it acceptable. If they're accepting subhuman conditions just to survive, the church stands forthrightly against that. That is not escape hatch. It's a, a not like employment at will. You accept what I offer you because it defies all the understanding of the human condition that those who have have so much power that be it a woman that has to exchange her body for a job or a man that has to go home with a few pennies for backbreaking labor, the church stands forthrightly against that concept. Another part of current Catholicism is the encyclical Fratelli Tutti by Pope Francis. And he mentioned subsidiarity three times in the paragraph 142. And again, in 175, he says, here we see a concrete application of the principle of subsidiarity, which justifies the participation and activity of communities and organizations on lower levels as a means of integrating and complementing the activity of the state. And he goes on into 187 to say, what are needed are new pathways of self-expression and participation in society. Education serves these by making it possible for each human being to shape his or her own future. Here too, we see the importance of the principle of subsidiarity, which is inseparable from the principle of solidarity. So it, it kind of comes back to the idea of work, unions, community, individual, but having solidarity and subsidiarity are interconnected, that we are all connected and we can play both at the level and expression of the individual and of the family and of the local community, but it's absolutely interconnected with the larger idea of the state and global affairs and international consensus. And Francis speaks well of that. It, it's throughout the teachings of the church. He speaks of the Good Samaritan. And for those who just say, well, see, the, that's all we need is the person coming along to pick up the beaten traveler, but he also in that same document says, we all needed the inn that he brought the traveler to. We all needed those civic institutions to, to augment and truly support the needs of all humanity, be it now the public uh, health service or a, a public health care or anything else that humanity needs in our fallen condition. I think that's very telling. Another beautiful thing about this quadragesimo encyclical, quadragesimo Anna, in 35, I guess chapter 35, he talks about Catholic labor unions. And under these conditions, Catholics seem almost forced to join secular labor unions. These unions, however, should always profess justice and equity and give Catholic members full freedom to care for their own conscience and obey the laws of the church. Is clearly the office of bishops when they know that these associations are in account circumstances necessary and not dangerous to religion to approve of Catholic workers joining them, keeping before their eyes, however, principles and precautions laid down by a predecessor, Pius X of holy memory. And it, it is kind of interesting uh, this interplay between following the Catholic Church, but then also promoting un unions. And he goes on to say, among these precautions, the first and chief is this side by side with these unions. There should always be associations zealously engaged in imbuing and informing their members in the teaching of religion and morality, 
so that they in turn may be able to permeate the unions with that good spirit, which should direct them in all their activity. In some ways, it seems this is almost written directly towards the, the Soviet Union and the socialist communists. Right, and the church's teachings, be it theology in, in, in any manner, in faith, is certainly in social justice. So we come here to get your opinion reinforced, it might be a tough sell. I mean, uh, you see throughout the teachings, they speak of the primacy of the family, you know, which, which some would look at as being reactionary or conservative, but but that's what they speak of. But, it, you know, in the first encyclical, Reum Novarum, he points out that the family existed before the state. You know, the family is, it is the uber, though he doesn't use that term, is the uber social institution. You know, can we look upon it as, as being uh, changed as time goes by? And, and we see Francis addressing that. You know, Francis's words go a long way in this. It, it, he may not be striking into documents, but, you know, his famous quote on the airplane about homosexual relationships. Who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? So the family, the family can change, but the ultimate condition of, of what can be defined as love through the family is one that we'll find throughout the church's teaching. I found an interesting document doing some research on this, and it's called a document titled Economic Justice for All by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And it's a pastoral letter promulgated in 1986, and it deals with the economy and with Catholic social teaching in the U.S. context, and it's in response to a lot of the Reagan administration policies. Mm -hmm. And it, it also talks about the principle of subsidiarity. And it, it states, essentially, the principle of subsidiarity calls for a government to intervene in the economy when basic justice requires greater social coordination and regulation of economic actors and institutions. Global economic relations, however, no international institution provides this sort of coordination regulation. The UN system, including the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, and the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, which is now the WTO or the World Trade Organization, does not possess the requisite authority. So, and it goes on to say, Pope John the 23rd called this institutional weakness, quote, a structural defect in the organization of the human community. The structures of world order, including economic ones, no longer correspond to the objective requirements of the universal common good. So in some ways we talk about the fracture within the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. And we see the letter they put out when Biden gets sworn into the inauguration. But this letter, the Economic Justice for All in 1986, is very clearly critical of the neoliberal turn the world has taken. As you think about the 1980s, you think about the IMF structural adjustment programs that they put onto a lot of developing countries that started to have a trade imbalance after the, the oil embargo and oil prices went up. So they had a balance of payment deficit. And so then they took out these large loans from the IMF. And then the IMF came in and said, you have to cut your hospitals, you have to cut your healthcare systems to pay interest on the loans that we gave you. So it's, it's a very strongly worded, and in the title, it says it all, economic justice for all. And they, they bring it back to the subsidiarity principle of at that point, if you're one of those nations under the thumb of the IMF, you, you can't be alone trying to fight that. You got to band together. We're very precedent, too, because, I mean, look where we're at now. So many years later with NAFTA, 
with ridiculously weak parts of it for protection of the labor and environment and the impact of unfettered globalization. You know, you can say that these bishops at that time saw it coming. There was incredible leadership back then, too. Not to say there isn't now, but Brennan out of Chicago, who basically conceived of what was called the a seamless garment when it comes to churches teaching using the gospel story of when the centurions went to salvage Christ's cloak and they couldn't rip it. He says that the church's teachings is a seamless garment. You can't you can't tear one part off from the other. And if you read the history of that teaching in the 80s there on economic justice for all, uh, very emphatic when they talk about the right to uh, organize. And you can see it played out right now as we move forward to protect the Right to Organize Act that will live or die in the Senate in this year's session. So uh, Also known as the PRO Act. So the PRO Act, yes, right. The greatest piece of, the most significant piece of proposed labor legislation since 1947, the Taft-Hartley Act, which just devastated the labor movement. So time will tell, and we probably will be talking about that in some episode. And once again, you, you come to the church's teachings, not necessarily to con, to find them conforming uh, to what you expect, Evan, but going back to the WTO, I find that fascinating because when after NAFTA and they went after the World Trade Organization, there was a battle for Seattle. And that was when labor, AFL-CIO, and uh, environmental organizations took to the streets in Seattle to try to shut down the meeting that put in place the current unfettered globalized structure that we're living under right now. It's something to think about. It was truly a, a popular front between environmentalists and uh, labor activists. 1998. Yep. Uh, and, and something that you mentioned at the beginning where the there's going to be people who are more on the right or more individually oriented to use the concept of subsidiarity to promote the idea that government should not intervene in someone's society or the, the big government. And it does have the danger of being interpreted in a simple way, creating almost like an anti-state, anti-government individual rights. And I watched this interesting debate between Christopher uh, Hitchens and people with the Ayn Rand Institute, and they didn't get into religion as much, but I, I still remember one of the guys saying there is only the individual. There's only the individual in the state. We're completely absent and removed from history, sociology, psychology, and all these, but there's only the individual. And if you live in a construct where there's only the individual, I think you can justify tremendous horrors and you can justify that some of the great inequalities and misery and immiseration that we see today in the world. And that's where I also always like to bring up the idea of natural law. And this idea of subsidiarity is to try to balance these things. There, it's, it's almost like an art. It's very hard to have a measurable science on it. And within the preamble of the constitution, there is a focus on natural law where it really says the justification and, and the whole legitimacy of the state. And we talked a little bit about this in episode one about eudaimonic legitimacy of a leader is that the whole point of a, a government is for this idea of a more perfect union that we're always striving to make ourselves better as a people in, in, in a union, not as a confederation, you know, and establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility provide for the common defense. 
promote the general welfare, that concept of general welfare is also a concept of natural law. The more we promote general welfare for you, the more my general welfare is improved because it's not a zero sum game. It's a harmony of interest idea. And so it, I, I really love bringing up the, the preamble, which is based on natural law. It's a government based on natural law while having a government separated from a particular religion. But that balance even with the state's rights and the federal government is this balance of subsidiarity as well. And sometimes there can be the, the overreach of the federal government. But at the same time, you look at the states today and they're all bankrupt. They're all unable to pay their pensions. Their entire revenue of taxes have gone away. So you're going to just say, because states should just fend for themselves as, as we've heard for the last four years and of the GOP Senate with Mitch McConnell, that they should all collapse? Of course not. That's, it doesn't make sense on national security. It doesn't make sense on economic principle and doesn't make sense on a Catholic principle of subsidiarity. The federal government has to step up and fill that vacuum. Again, what is the lowest level in society of societal institutions that can effectively address the, the common good, social justice? And if we look at, again, healthcare, are we going to say the, count, the counties can address it, the families can address it? Each family can come up with an MRI machine for themselves, ER for themselves. Can the counties do it? Can the cities do it? You know, I don't need we even ask. But Evan, what you said just a minute ago about the common good, if one benefits, I benefit, to, to kind of paraphrase what you're saying, I heard that and I just said, that's Catholic teaching right there. Going back to Genesis, the first book, right? God calls down, man. He calls down to Cain. Where's Abel? You know, Cain says, I don't know. Am I my, am I my brother's keeper? Yo, dude. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You know, you get into Matthew 25. You know, Christ talks about the final judgment. You know, the goats will go one way, the sheep will go the other. Well, how will that be judged, teacher? Well, when, when you fed me, when, when you housed me, when you clothed me, when you came to me while I was in jail. When did we ever do that for you, teacher? When you did it to the least of us. And so you again, Francis is teaching there that you quote. He, he speaks so much of the Good Samaritan. So, I mean, it's so much of the Good Samaritan. And again, so much of the teachings of the church we talked about in our first episode, Evan, is uh, our the Catholic Church teaches that there's two ways of sinning. You know, you know, it's what you have done. You know, we say that at mass every every time we we go to a regular mass on Sunday. What what we have done and what we have failed to do. There's no easy out, <laughs> is there? So, final thoughts on the encyclical of the 1931 Aquadragesimo Anno. Well, again, it's like a, a highway. It's like a road. You see the church's teachings in social justice as well as all the other teachings. I mean, there's many encyclicals, and there's more than a dozen encyclicals on the rosary. You can picture the Pope like, nailing down these planks. He's moving the road along. Uh, he's not diverging from the earlier teachings. He's moving them along into the times we're living at. He's reacting to the times, like you said, 1931, what the church saw in the landscape. So everyone should take a look at this encyclical and go to catholiclabor.org and uh, take a look at their write-up and give it a go, give it a read. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts, 
on it and to shed any light where we didn't shine it. So absolutely. Very good. So we have a couple more things to discuss. First, it's the season of Lent that began on Wednesday, February 17th last week, and it will end on Saturday, April 3rd. And Lent is a solemn religious observance in the liturgical calendar that begins on Ash Wednesday and ends approximately six weeks later, the night before Easter Sunday. And the purpose of Lent is the preparation of the believer for Easter through prayer, doing penance, mortifying the flesh, repentance of sins, almsgiving, simple living, and self-denial. And just to go on, there are traditionally 40 days in Lent. These are marked by fasting, both from foods and festivities, and by acts of penance. And so the three traditional practices to be taken up with renewed vigor during Lent are prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, which is justice towards neighbors. And these are known as the three pillars of Lent. So are you doing anything special for Lent this year? Uh, well, it's, it's interesting. They talked about giving up meat and my wife and I joke. It's like, yeah, you give up meat, but you're not really uh, in the spirit if you're having lobster or, you know, some imported uh, fish. But the wife showed me a, a great take from Francis, from our current pontiff, what to give up. Because, you know, right now it, it's so hard to, you know, so you're going to give up meat, but you're going to eat some great vegetables or whatever, but give up grudges give up pessimistic thoughts. And so that's what I'm trying to work on. I'm a pessimist by nature, give up negative thoughts. And once again, Francis just nails it. And uh, that's my approach, but like my approach on all of the Catholic teachings, uh, all of my faith, I'm practicing. Yeah, and a part of it is the justice towards self. So self-reflection, simplicity, and mm -hmm. sincerity or honesty are also emphasized. And uh, mm -hmm. I think that's a really important aspect is to center yourself, to also keep your your mind full of love and, and not fear and hate. And that's that goes both to how you feel about yourself sometimes when we wake up and we may just, just feel really down on ourselves and to remove those thoughts, but then also go outside of our head. And I, I always find some of the best like solutions to human ails and individual depression is to, to get involved in your community. Mm -hmm. Through good works, you will you will find and be animated by the spirit through love mm -hmm. of of your neighbor and, and helping people and getting active in politics and, and in labor unions as well. Excellent. You know, what's the church's teaching that Christ is in all of us? You know, when when someone approaches us, we should see them as Christ. I always remember the fish fries on Friday night. In yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. All, nice to the Columbus. church, yeah, and they had right. the cafeteria going, and we'd, you know, yeah. well, put a little money that. down and uh, a little donation, and they come mm -hmm. back with a bunch of uh, fried fish and fried perch, actually. It was really nice. That was, wow, well, we could get a whole show on the culture of a generation or so ago, but the church is dynamic, 2,000-year-old uh, institution. And so we are closing it out to discuss the Poor People's Campaign. Mm -hmm. And Poor People's Campaign is the full title is Poor People's Campaign, a national call for a moral revival. And it's an American anti-poverty campaign led by William Barber II and Liz Theo Harris. And it takes its name from the original 1968 Poor People's Campaign, which is an effort to gain economic justice for poor people in the United States. So you wanted to put this on the radar within the episode. Do you want to 
talk a little bit about it, John? I'll say a few things. It came up on a, a Facebook group that I originated a couple of years ago called Labor Lines, uh, just like my radio show, like my podcast. And one of our brothers from down in the Southwest, Eduardo Pausilio, posted it. It was actually a, a call-in on the 22nd of February. And so I noted that the Porter People's Campaign, I'll just throw this out, 1968, you know, the clock was ticking on, on Dr. King. The clock was ticking on Dr. King. You know, he stepped out of the boundaries. There was one thing to call for civil rights. It was a whole nother thing to call for economic rights for to expand social justice. And I'm not sure when he spoke at Riverside Church when he condemned uh, United States militarism. In Vietnam. And I believe that was in 67 even, uh, 66 or okay. 67. And 68 was the, they were reorganizing to bring together the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and the poverty pro-jobs labor movement with the Poor People's Campaign. It was gonna be a huge march on Washington in the summer of 1968 with the election of 1968, which was going to be between Nixon and what looked like Robert Kennedy after mm -hmm. he won the California primary. Right. And obviously before then though, Martin Luther King was gunned down. And the plan was to bring millions of people to Washington and stay there until policies addressed the millions and millions of poor people that have been left behind. And with the receding of policies like the New Deal, with the budgets that were starting to grow under the Vietnam War, as more money was being diverted from the country to the war machine. And uh, he paid for it with his life. I agree 100%. Look what happened. Robert Kennedy, Martin Luther King, and maybe a little less known, Fred Hampton, doing the same thing, expanding it out of a movement for Black civil rights. And Walter Ruther, who stood with King, was part of, they credit him with the first Earth Day, survived three bona fide assassination attempts, and died of suspicious air crash in Alaska. Northern Michigan. Whatever. whatever yeah. Whatever the history will tell us about this, all we know is it was it was a time of, of great risk taking on these people's part and great loss on all of ours. Well, the spirit never dies. And so mm -hmm. the poor people's campaign, there's chapters in almost every state, and they have several demands that I'm going to read off here. We rise to demand that the 140 million poor and low income people in our nation from every race, creed, color, sexuality and place are no longer ignored, dismissed or pushed to the margins of our political and social agenda. We rise not as left or right, Democrat or Republican, but as a moral fusion movement to build power, build moral activism, build voter participation, and we won't be silent anymore. We rise to change the moral narrative and demand that the interlocking injustices of systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, the war economy, militarism, and the distorted moral narrative of religious nationalism all be ended. We rise to challenge the lie of scarcity in the midst of abundance. We rise to lift voices and faces of poor and low-income Americans and their moral allies, the new vision of love, justice, and truth for America that says poverty can be abolished and change can come. It's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, and once again, a, a moral uh, revival and doing, I, I just will humbly say we're echoing that to our degree in that we no longer cede that battlefield to those who pose justice 
for all. That it, it, it is a moral issue. It's an ethical issue well and beyond politics. So those are beautiful closing thoughts. Anything else you'd like to add? I'm just honored to be here, Evan. Appreciate your effort behind all the technology here and uh, looking forward to our next session. Thank you, John. Thank you, Evan. And thank you for watching episode two of Faith and Labor. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, and suggested guests for future shows as we seek to promote what Pope Francis described in Fratelli Tutti, a more just and fraternal world where love shatters the chains that keeps us isolated and separate. In their place, it builds bridges. Thank you.